and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl, but I'm a Scranton girl. We're getting a lot of uh, episode suggestions and questions in the lead up to the Pennsylvania primary, but one thing our listeners have asked that we explore further are two key topics from other episodes. Number one, what's on the mind of Philadelphia voters and how enthusiastic Philadelphia voters are, as well as number two, state house line changes and what all this means for taking back the majority. These are important themes. We should all closely follow them in the months ahead. By the way, we're about 185 days until Election Day in November. Today's guests could lead a weekend-long seminar on all these topics. Jordan Harris is the Pennsylvania House Democratic Whip. He served in Harrisburg for about 10 years. This is all pretty remarkable before the age of 40. So I'm excited to get his perspective. State Representative Jordan Harris, welcome to my kitchen table. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here with you. So, so much has changed in uh, Philadelphia since we first met 15 years ago, but specifically also in your uh, in your district. Maybe tell folks a little about your district and the changes over the last uh, few years. Yeah, so I've been in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives for 10 years. And, you know, I just sat back the other day and I thought about it. I'm like, wow, 10 years. It doesn't feel like that long of a time for me. But at the end of this term, it will be a full 10 years for me. And um, my district has stayed the same and yet changed uh, in, in, in many ways. There are tons of new development happening uh, in my neighborhood. I represent uh, Point Breeze, Grays Ferry, Graduate Hospital, and parts of King Sessing, those neighborhoods in South and Southwest Philadelphia. And uh, gentrification has hit, Grace, uh, has hit Graduate Hospital and moved on to parts of Point Breeze over the last 10 years. And now a little bit into Grace Ferry and therefore programs and funding for housing and keeping people in their homes and things of that have been very important for us to do. Something that we're actually working on right now uh, with the governor uh, and with some of my colleagues as we see so much happening in, in the community. In addition to that, lots of people just want to live in my district. In the redistricting, we actually had to shed some of my district because I just... I just had too many people uh, because of the new developments that came into the neighborhood uh, where, you know, there was once nothing and now there's, you know, 200 units. So, you know, that is the kind of change that I've seen in the 186th legislative district over the last 10 years. We're definitely going to talk about the redistricting and the new lines uh, in a moment, but give folks a sense, just anecdotally, where, where are all these new constituents, all these new neighbors uh, coming from? Are they coming from... Uh, elsewhere in PA or they came as students from out of state and they're staying and give listeners a sense? Yeah. So I think, honestly, I think it's it's a little bit of both because what I've seen happen is that you have students who come to one of the great universities that are in Philadelphia, whether it's Temple, whether it's Drexel, whether it's Penn, uh, U Arts. I mean, literally Philadelphia is 
full of amazing universities. And people often come to Philadelphia for those universities. And many of them are now staying in the city. You have people who moved outside of Philadelphia to raise families whose uh, children are now out of the house and they want to live downtown. They want to live near, you know, shopping and, and, and entertainment and things of that nature. And they're moving back closer. Uh, and then you have people who are just moving here from other places in the country uh, for, for work. And, and, and they're moving in a district. So you have a, a collage of a lot of different people wanting to move in, in, into my district. I mean, it's a place where you can find just about any type of cuisine that you want to eat. And, and it's a place where, you know, folks love to sit outdoors and dine. And, you know, there's music and there's parks and there's green space. And it's just a lot of different things happening in the district. Well, a lot of things have also happened in your life in the last year and a half. Your colleagues uh, voted for you to be the uh, the whip, the number two in the caucus. But maybe tell listeners, because uh, increasingly, uh, Jordan, we have a lot of listeners from from Washington, from New York, outside of um, you know day to day Harrisburg politics. A little about your background, why you got involved in politics, and then how you uh, so quickly at such a young age uh, became the number two in the state house uh, caucus. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I'm originally from the district that I live in and represent. I grew up in South Philadelphia, went to school here, went to public school all the way up, even until public university. My undergrad is from Millersville University, which is one of Pennsylvania's 14 state owned and operated universities. Went to Cabrini College, a Catholic university to get my master's degree. But all the way up until I finished my undergrad degree it was public school for me. And I grew up in a neighborhood Lived with my mother. My grandmother lived directly across the street. My grandmother was a school teacher in Philadelphia, Philadelphia school teacher for 32 years. And I was blessed to have her kind of like a second mother to me uh, growing up. And quite honestly, the community that that I represent really helped raise me. I still go to the block that I grew up on that my mother still lives on. And I still see neighbors that I've known since literally birth who continue to go out and support me. And you look, that was my base of support when I honestly started to, to run for office. All of those folks who watched me grow up or I went to school with their son or their daughter or went to church together or something, those folks became um, my base of support. So graduated from Millersville. Uh, and actually, um, one of my first jobs out of college, I was a fourth grade teacher. A lot of people don't know that I actually, I taught fourth grade hated teaching fourth grade. Well, you need a hell of a lot of patience to, <laughs> to... Oh, my goodness. I, you know, I couldn't do it. I, I, I congratulate any teacher who's teaching fourth grade because I just couldn't cut it. Interestingly enough, though, I moved to middle school and I taught seventh and eighth grade middle school social studies and I loved it. I mean, loved it. I fell in love with education, teaching middle school social studies. I was you know, early 20s. So it was like teaching a younger brother or a younger sister. And I really, really uh, enjoyed it. And to this day, still keeping communications with many of my students. Actually, two of my students actually got married and had had a baby. And I was at the baby shower. I got invited to the wedding. All It was it's just it, it's, it was a great experience for me to be a teacher. And at that time, that's when I decided to go get a master's degree in education. I left the classroom to actually go work at the school district of Philadelphia in an administrative role. I left the school district of Philadelphia to go work as the executive director of uh, the Philadelphia Youth Commission, which was tasked with advising the mayor, who at the time was Michael Nutter, and members of city council on all issues dealing with youth and young adults. And I did that for about a year and a half, two years before resigning my position to run for the state house. I resigned in uh, 
November of 2011. Uh, started my campaign January of 2012. Won my primary April 24th of 2012. Uh, no challenger in November. And I started serving January 1st, 2013. And I've been blessed to serve my community since then. Okay, I want to uh, kind of zoom out and look across 203 state house districts, and then uh, we'll we'll uh, boomerang back to uh, the city of Philadelphia. So, we had an episode. We talked a little about the saga over the maps uh, from the nonpartisan lens of a great journalist, but would love to get a sense of you and other caucus leaders as you were kind of watching all the twists and turns of uh, recent months, you know, what was going through your minds? And then ultimately when these maps were chiseled in stone for the next 10 years, uh, you know, give give folks a sense. Yeah. So Pennsylvania has had gerrymandered maps for, for about two decades now. And if I'm, you know, just quite honestly, uh, Republicans have done a great job of ensuring that they had a majority through the map making process. And what we set out to do over this, this, this redistricting, was really just to undo uh, what was done and what has been done over the last 20 years. And and let me be clear, these maps are not Democrat-leaning maps. If you look at the registration, if you look at the numbers, these maps still lean Republican. But what happened is there's been a lot of untangling and putting communities back together and providing opportunities for diverse candidates to rise to the top and be able to represent communities uh, that they live in. Uh, so, you know, over this, you know, these these uh, few months, um, our leader, uh, Representative McClinton, our appropriations chair, myself uh, and a whole lot of other folks, our, our team really, you know, you know, looked at how do we undo the 20 years of, of gerrymandering and put communities back together so that Democrats uh, have a shot uh, at taking a the majority. There is no short thing. This is not a short thing. There is a shot because the maps are fair. That's all. Listen, the thing is, we didn't need and didn't want uh, maps that were gerrymandered to the Democratic Party. We wanted maps that were just fair uh, because our belief is that with fair maps, people really get their voice heard and you're no longer disenfranchising folks. So, you know, that's what you've seen. And and quite honestly, it's, it reflects the population shift that you've seen in our Commonwealth. There has been a great shift folks living in the West to a lot more living in the Southeast and in the Northeast. So you see places like Philadelphia getting another seat. You see places in the Southeast getting another seat. You see places in the Northeast getting another seat. You even see places in the uh, central part of the state getting another seat because that's just what the population says. So, you know, that's what's happened over the last years. Now, some people will say whatever they want to say, but, you know, and we believe it was a fair process and the Supreme Court believed it was a fair process. And that's why they upheld our maps. So I'm not sure that it's entirely because of the maps. But what we're also seeing is some of your Republican colleagues are having some pretty dicey uh, primaries. And I, I just be curious, uh, you know, to, to the extent you want to wade in as you look at the speaker, for example, having a primary, the appropriation chair having a primary. It just the, it, I don't know. We see this on a national level also uh, with with members of Congress that we're getting primaries from uh the hard right. And don't worry, we'll talk about uh, the progressive wing of the party and uh, inter-democratic in a moment, too. Yeah, I think what you're seeing, though, is a a response to people believing that the election was fraudulent. Uh, The 2020 election was fraudulent. A lot of the folks who are primarying my colleagues from the right are primarying my colleagues because they thought that they should have overturned the will of the voters uh, in the 2020 election. So I think that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a lot of folks who are saying 
that the speaker, that the appropriations chair, and that others on the Republican side should have done more to overturn what the will of Pennsylvania voters were. And as a as a Biden delegate myself, who was there on on the day of the Electoral College to cast my vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, I think it's you know it's a shame that we've gotten to a place in our body politics where people are listening to news programs that aren't giving news, that are giving more opinion than they are news, uh, and that they're believing that someone stole our election. The election wasn't stolen. The election was fair. People came out and voted, and, and their will was seen in, uh, in the returns. We've done our own analysis as a commonwealth, and we see that the election returns are exactly what, uh, what they said. So a lot of my colleagues are seeing primaries from the right. Which, And here's the thing. For me, you know, that doesn't help us because if these folks lose to a more right uh, member, there's left there's less room in the middle for us to actually work together and get things done on the places where we have common ground. You know, for me, politics is not about just slanting one side or the other. Clearly, I'm a Democrat. Clearly, I want majority. Clearly, I want majority in the House and and the Senate. And, and, and I would love to do that and have the governor's mansion and be, and be able to run an agenda. But what I also know is that in my state, a lot of people are actually in the middle. And when we can govern from a place where um, we could actually work together, I think it actually makes for a better um, body politics. The divisiveness that we see in politics right now, where Democrats and Republicans agree on issues but won't work together because one is a Democrat, one is a Republican, that just doesn't help anybody. And I think most citizens, whether they're in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, New York, or any place across this country, they actually just want a government that works for them. And I think that's what we're at risk of losing when we're electing more people on the extremes of both parties. You're losing the the space in the middle and you're losing the opportunity, in my view, for us to work together and actually get things get things done and get big things done. Well, I agree with you 100 percent. And I do want to talk about policy in a moment. But we certainly have seen in recent years more D on D primaries than really ever before in uh, our lifetime, uh, Jordan. So as Whip, as someone who's intimately familiar with each and every member of the caucus, uh, I mean, how, how does that work as you have some, um, you know, some folks uh, just re- really you know, coming at this from a different uh, worldview and perspective than, um, than you might have? Well, it's not the prettiest of things. I can say that <laughs> when, you know, we have uh, colleagues who are uh, running against each other, um, it makes for an uncomfortable caucus room. But, you know, people have a right to run. I, I just think that as a Democrat who's in the minority, I, I would wish people will focus their time, energy and resources on helping us win seats that are held by Republicans so that we can take the majority. Because at the end of the day, you know, just getting more, just, you know, replacing one Democrat with another doesn't do anything with regards to changing who sets the agenda. Doesn't do anything uh, to change who sets when we meet and when we don't meet. It doesn't do anything to change who the Speaker of the House of Representatives will be. And for me, at the end of the day, that's what really changes policy. Now, some people will argue, well, we want, you know, Democrats who are more progressives. And, and, and that's fine. You know, I I like to think many of my views are progressive in nature and that's fine. But if you have a whole room full of progressive thinkers who are still in the minority, your ideas don't become law. They become talking points. Yeah, it's a bit of an echo chamber. And at the end of the day, we don't need more talking points. We need more folks who can get laws passed. Amen. Well, you've devoted a considerable amount of time. Uh, on criminal justice reform and recidivism, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Maybe you can give listeners a sense of um, uh, some of what you've been working on when you're not looking at the political landscape 
And, you know, for that matter, Pennsylvania is a full-time legislature. Uh, we're headed into budget season. You know, what's, what's, what's still on the plate for you and the caucus? Yeah, so, you know, I've, I've done a lot on the criminal justice reform um, platform, and we've gotten a lot done. In Pennsylvania, myself and my Republican partner, Representative Cheryl DeLosier, passed the nation's first Clean Slate Act, which was uh, the nation's first automatic record sealing uh, legislation. I think just the other day, uh, I'm going to get the state wrong. Maybe it was Oklahoma. I, I don't remember. I'll have to look on my Twitter. But there was another state literally just, I think it was yesterday, that, you know, passed Clean Slate in their, in, in their assembly. Um, since we passed it here in 2018, states across the country are, it was Oklahoma, I was right. Uh, the, <laughs> since we passed it here, states across the country are either introducing or passing Clean Slate which really provides a second chance for people who found themselves on the wrong side of the law, but change your lives. Here in Pennsylvania, we're looking to actually expand what we've done and add nonviolent felonies. Um, what I can tell you is that since Clean Slate passed and took effect in Pennsylvania, more than 50 million criminal records have been sealed in our Commonwealth, affecting more than 1.1 million people. So if we add nonviolent felonies, we believe millions, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, more records will be sealed and millions of more people will be positively affected. So that, that's something that, you know, I am very passionate about. We've also done some some work around professional licensings and what, what second chances look like with folks with regards to their professional licensing. So we've done a lot of in the criminal justice space uh, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, one of the things I'm starting to look at policy-wise now, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, is around housing. In many places in, in, in Philadelphia and across the Commonwealth, um, the, uh, the, the thought of having an American dream of Owning a home is becoming fainter and fainter for, for, for many Pennsylvanians. So we have to really look hard at how do we do affordable housing. We have to look really hard at how do we keep people in their homes. And quite honestly, affordable rentals as well, because there are a lot of folks who aren't in a position to buy a home, but we need them to be able to be in a position to get an affordable rental. So we're, 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 we're looking at that also. As a caucus, you know, just, I, I just the numbers, we, we have over a we, our revenue in the month of April was over a billion dollars more than we anticipated. I think of the numbers like a billion three more than we anticipated. We're at four point eight billion more on the year with two months left of revenue to come in. So one of the things that our caucus has been extremely supportive of is the governor's proposal to fully fund public education in Pennsylvania. We know that the schools that need resources the most are still under Funded. We have an old funding formula where more than 80 percent of our funding goes through that formula and a new formula where less than 20 percent of our funding goes through that formula. It's the new formula that we know actually addresses the inequities that we see in public education in Pennsylvania. But only 20 percent of the money is going there. Only new money in our budget goes through the new formula. So what we've proposed, what the governor's proposed and we've supported is to put more than a billion dollars new money into public education to right size the fact that more money is going through the old formula than it is going to the new formula. We have something called hold harmless in Pennsylvania, which basically means a district will not get less than what they got before in state funding so that we're not cutting districts of resources. Now, in order to get to a place where there is adequate funding, we're going to have to put a significant amount of resources into public education. Now is the time, in my view, when we look at our, our coffers and see where we are 
And that's not just this year. We've projected over the next three to five years that these trends will continue. And we believe that we can fully fund public education in Pennsylvania. So that is one of the top priorities of the House Democratic Caucus. This is great stuff. You've been super generous with your time. But as I said, we're going to boomerang back to uh, Philadelphia, where where it all began uh, almost 250 years ago, but where it began uh, about 25 minutes ago in our conversation. So what do you think? Uh, I've asked uh, a few of our guests in recent months, but now we're 185 days out from the election. I mean, what's on the mind of voters? Uh, What are you hearing when you're dropping in at a bar, at a market, at a barbershop? I mean, what are people talking about? Is it the themes you just mentioned, or is it completely different? Or do you think People aren't even focused on the election until uh, come Labor Day. Yeah, so I don't know. You know, I think a lot of people are just frustrated with with politics in general. And a lot of folks question how does the political process actually benefit them and affect their lives? And I think what we have to understand as elected officials, and and I say this myself, is, you know, what are those, and, you know, kind of play on your, your title, what are those kitchen table conversations that are happening? at dining room tables across Pennsylvania, across, you know, all the country. What are people talking about? Well, right now they're talking about ga- gas. Gas prices are high. They're talking about the fact that the, the rent and prices to buy homes have increased. Food prices have increased, but wages have not. And, you know, quite honestly, folks in my mind are looking for elected officials who are going to come into office and actually address the problems. Not blame the Republicans, not blame the Democrats or whoever is in power, but actually try to find ways to make people's lives just a little bit easier. I don't think people want to sit at home and not work. That's that's a misnomer that I think we allow people to tell us about our fellow uh, citizens. I think what people are saying is when they go out to work, they just want to be paid decently. You know, look, if you go out to work 40 hours a week, you should be able to take care of yourself. You should be able to feed your family. That's not to say that you're going to drive the most luxury of of, of vehicles, but it does mean that you should be able to put food on your table. And there are far too many people who work 40, 50, 60 hours and they still can't make ends meet. So when you when you when you know, when you ask me, what are people thinking about? They're thinking about the real issues that affect their bottom line and affect their every day. I hear you. We could go on and on. So last question. Let's assume it's already the morning of May 18th and the dust has settled because uh, we're not going to stay up until 4 a.m. What are some surprises you think that are coming down the pike or what are you going to be looking for uh, into the wee hours of the 17th and into the 18th? Well, in Pennsylvania, I'm looking at who wins the senatorial, the U.S. Senate primary. Uh, the major candidates are our Lieutenant Governor Fetterman, uh, Congressman Connor Lamb, and my endorsed candidate, my colleague, Representative Malcolm Kenyatta. I think people in Pennsylvania will be looking to see who wins that race. I think they'll be seeing who wins the, the gubernatorial primary. As we know, Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania does not have a primary opponent and is gearing up for the general election. But the question is, who will he be running against? And, you know, the Republicans have, in my mind, haven't made a decision on, on what that looks like. So I think a lot of people will be looking at who's running for governor on the Republican side. I think they'll also be looking at who's running for governor uh, in the U.S. Senate race. There are a lot of folks running in that race. And I think that that is another kind of up for grabs. So, you know, a lot of folks will be looking at that as a as a leader in my caucus. I will be looking to see how my incumbents do who have primary challenges and what the makeup of our caucus will look like moving forward as at least post post primary. So, you know, those are the the, the things that I will be up on looking at and paying attention to. Also, my, my state senator has a race 
So I will be paying attention to my state senator's race as that affects what happens in my district. So those are the things that I think people will be paying attention to. All right. So one, one final question. Deep, deep blue district turnout. We've seen incredible numbers over the years. We've seen less than incredible numbers in other years. Uh, are you ready to make a prediction uh, percentage uh, of folks that turn out in uh, the neighborhoods you mentioned that you represent? My district, you know, we, yeah. you know, folks in my district typically vote in primaries. I think the U.S. Senate primary will help turn out folks. It's driving. It's driving a lot of uh, a lot of buzz. Yeah, I mean, because because you got you got to think about it. A lot of folks, um, when you look at the makeup in uh, of my district, a lot of folks are going to want to vote. I think my district probably goes either for Fetterman or for Malcolm Kenyatta. At least parts of my district, 30th Ward parts of Point Breeze. I think you'll see that. So I think a lot of folks will be energized uh, or casting their vote for who they want to see in the general election for the United States Senate. Well, thank you much and look forward to uh, seeing where the twists and turns of the election take us. So I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. We'll talk soon, brother. Thank you for tuning in to a special episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Please join us for future episodes by subscribing, and while you're at it, give us a rating and a review. We love listener feedback, so drop us a note via our website, papoliticspodcast.org. And a very special thanks to Jake Schwartz for all his production assistance. I'm Ari Middleman, and this is Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics.